0: Good to see you. Well, I guess I don't see you. I guess it's good to be seen, to know that there are people out there that are online with us this morning, our church community in this weird live stream. I don't think I'll ever get used to the fact that we do this, but um, here we are. As Ryan said, we're going to be in Mark, the book of Mark, specifically, we're going to be in chapter 10 looking at a well-known encounter that Jesus had with a man um, that was very wealthy, who is described as, in the other gospels, as young, who was described as a ruler, and which is why we commonly and very creatively refer to him as the rich young ruler. And so um, that's what we're gonna be looking at uh, this morning. So uh, we're gonna be in Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 17. Grab your Bibles, or your phones, or your iPads, whatever it is, however you read scripture. It's also gonna be on the screen this is what our passage says. And as he was setting out on his journey, that being Jesus, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a good question. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know, the commandments do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth, very impressive. And Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, then for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Pray with me. Jesus, we have before us this morning as we, as we look at this passage, this incredible passage of this encounter where you are, are calling, we see you calling people to yourself to follow you. I pray this morning, God, that in our hearts, the things that are in the way, the walls that we have set up, the things that have ensnared us, that keep us from following you, I pray that those would be just eradicated and abolished and done away with. I pray that there would be nothing that stands in our way and keeps us from following you. We take heed to your call. And we ask now, Holy Spirit, that you would work, do a mighty work in our hearts. I pray for myself. Lord, that you would just give me the ability to articulate the words that you want me to articulate and the sensitivity to the Holy Spirit to lead me and guide me. In your name we pray, amen. Well, I recently had my 46th birthday and by recently, I mean November. But, uh... You know, after after turning 25, I stopped really paying attention or caring about how old I was. Um, and my nine-year-old daughter, she's the one that most of the time now reminds me of how old I actually am because I, I don't even really keep track of it. But I'm very aware of the fact that I'm getting older. And as I get older, I find myself myself thinking about the future and about how my future is actually getting shorter. And I guess living in a pandemic and and having under uh, several or actually not several, but maybe more than one underlying health conditions will will do that to a person. But when we're young, we don't actually think very much about the future, certainly not in a long-term sense, at least most people don't. Some uh, Some do more than others, but there's actually a nonprofit out there that I stumbled across that you can actually join this nonprofit, you can give them money, and it's called the Coalition for Radical Life Extension. Jenny's going to put a link in the chat in a minute so that you can check that out. I'm kidding; she's not going to go do that. I, the last thing I want to do is distract you from this nonsense. But anyway, the Coalition for Radical Life Extension, and uh, and if it were if it were me, I probably would have like you know, chosen a name where you could use L-I-F-E as an acronym or something like that, because that would be more clever, I think, and funny. Uh, But anyway, if you want to join this group, if you wanted to, you could learn about how to start living your eternity now. You could help set the agenda for a new era of human advancement and have a blast, apparently, quote, Have a blast celebrating our unlimited future together. And so that's what lies before you. So, you know, if you guys aren't doing anything later and you want to check that out, there you go. But for the record, these comments are not, these comments are my own. They are not an endorsement, nor do they reflect collective church or its leadership or anything like that, just for the record. But this is kind of an oddball group, uh, obviously, but there are all kinds of studies that are dedicated to aging and the science of aging and understanding aging and how we can extend life and, uh, and in some cases, the pursuit of even how we can live forever and ultimately be immortal. Now, it's kind of good because of course, eternal life is biblical. But the Bible actually speaks about eternal life in a different kind of sense. And in our text, we come across a man here who is interested in eternal life and he asks Jesus about it. In our text in verse 17, he says, good teacher, that's how he addresses him. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And it's a good question, obviously, and it's one I wish that more of us would ask on a more regular basis or consider or think about. And Jesus' immediate response was to lay out, like, what do you mean good? Like, why do you call me good teacher? There's no one good but God. And of course, Jesus being God is speaking about himself. And and it it highlights the, the reality of how um, no, none of us are good. There is only one that is good and that is God. And so it, it immediately raises this issue of how sin has come into the world. We are all sinners and we have violated God's law. We have broken God's righteous standard. And the scripture tells us that all have fallen short. So immediately we're reminded of our sinful condition and made aware of that condition. And Jesus, for the, for, the, for the sake of this man, he points him to what was already revealed. And Jesus is like, you know, there's this thing called the Ten Commandments that I did a while ago. You may have heard of them. And he quotes a few of them for the man. And, and what Jesus is not saying here in, in quoting the law and in quoting uh, some of these commandments, what Jesus is not saying that this man could gain eternal life by obeying the commandments, what he's doing is that he's emphasizing the law as God's perfect standard that must be met. And the man is like, kind of relieved. And he's like, well, Jesus, I'm kind of glad, I'm kind of glad you said that because actually, verse 20, all of these I have kept from my youth. Very impressive. He was a very devout uh, man. Uh, and in his religious observance, this man, he, he played by the rules. He always did what he was supposed to do. Here, here he's thinking he's met the qualifications. He's checked off all the boxes and he's done all that he needs to do To earn his spot. So, this is what it takes. He's thinking, I should be good then, right? I should be good. And Jesus, I love this next section here, verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. So this man's like, oh, look, check that out. I can tell by the look on his face, he's so proud of me. Oh, I think he's about to say something to me. He's, he's about to say something. I bet you it's going to be so important for me to hear this. And it's going to be congratulatory. He's going to tell me what a great job I did. He's going to tell me he's been so proud of me for the way that I've followed the law. And I love that, that we see Jesus loving him here. I love that we see his tenderness. And he looked at him and he loved him. And the man didn't know that in that moment, Jesus was about to tell him that he didn't measure up. But that didn't change the fact that Jesus loved him. And Jesus said to him, you lack one thing. Sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. This is such a moment we need to pay attention to this. We already read the entirety of the passage. So we know how this plays out, but this is the heart of Jesus for this man. This is the heart of Jesus towards us. Culture likes to redefine who God is for us. And culture likes to tell us who God is. People often emphasize that God is love, but what is almost always completely and conveniently left out is Uh, they, they overlook the holiness of God. But God is true to himself. He's holy. He is love, but he will always be true to himself and to his nature. He is love, but he is also holy. And as he is holy, he maintains a righteous standard. His love and his holiness are not in conflict with one another. We often pit those two against one another, but they're totally consistent and they're coexisting within God and within his nature. Modern culture would have us believe that God is a bully, an oppressive being, a cosmic killjoy, and and someone that just wants to ruin our fun and repress us. And we reject the things that uh, he calls us to. God gets in our way. And viewing him that way How does culture then relate to him by total rejection very often, and then a reconstruction of a God that they like, which more often than not looks like something they see in the mirror every morning. We we become our own gods and do whatever seems right to us, whatever we want to do. And we live our own truth, whatever that means. I don't even know what that means. I'm going to live my truth. Someone needs to explain that to me. I I don't even know what that means. We must see the commands of Jesus through the lens of his love for us. And by the way, as you remember in our text, this man begins this conversation by calling Jesus good. And he was not wrong. Jesus is good. He's not this big meanie in the sky. Now you would not say that I'm being mean or unloving if i tell my daughters to not my daughters to not run out in traffic you would not say i'm being mean or unloving if i tell them not to play with kitchen knives you would not say i'm being mean or unloving to my daughters if i monitored their access to the internet no you'd say lorenzo that's what that's called responsible parenting you're looking out for them now that that's just you, maybe. Maybe you understand what's going on there. My kids not, might, might not agree with you. My kids not, might not see it in the same way. They might have a different perspective where they don't, you know, because they don't get to do whatever they want to do. They might view that as unloving. They might view that as mean. I remember my, my oldest daughter, when she was younger, it was one of the first times that she got in trouble for something. And she was at that level of age where she could express herself and all of that. And something happened and there was a consequence. And then I remember she turned to me, and she says, you're being mean. <laughs> and I couldn't help it, but I just had to laugh in, in that moment because, um, I don't know, I sh- maybe I shouldn't do that. But anyway, uh, we, we often view God that way and we view him as sort of an enemy to us or, um, Um, someone that is in conflict with us when he establishes his righteous standard and when he presents his commands. Some of us relate to God in this way and um, we don't recognize that and we don't see that his commands are for our good and we don't recognize that he's giving these things to us and 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 he sets out his way for us to follow because he loves us and we ignore what he says and we do whatever we want because it makes sense to us. And we think it's okay. And that's all that matters really at the end of the day, right? Now this passage and and verse 21 in particular raises a question that I want to touch on as it relates to this man and his wealth. The question is, is it wrong, immoral, unjust, or ungodly for someone to be wealthy? And this is a concept that seems to be growing in popularity. But Uh, I don't believe that any of these things are inherently evil, wrong, immoral, unjust, or ungodly. And the reason why I feel that way is because scripture does not condemn personal wealth or the wealthy. Let's look at a few verses. We don't have a lot of time to get into a lot of them, but we can look at a few. Proverbs chapter three, nine through 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. There's no directive here to get rid of it. But rather, the instruction is to honor the Lord with wealth. Proverbs 13 in verse 22. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. So here's multi-generational wealth that is not condemned, but is actually stewarded in such a way that a person provides for his family and his family's family multi-generational. It's described as being a good thing. And then in Psalm 112 in verse three, speaking of a man who fears the Lord, it says wealth and riches are in his house and his righteousness endures forever. And then the apostle Paul writing to Timothy, his young pastoral protege provides these helpful words and warnings to the wealthy as they follow Jesus. And this is what he says in first Timothy chapter six. Starting at verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them to not be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of, of that which is truly life. Now, notice what it doesn't say. If wealth were ungodly or immoral or unjust, why would Paul not include that in his instructions to Timothy? But it's clear that throughout the entirety of scripture, we see warning after warning after warning about money and our relationship with money. And I'll share a few scriptures. And as we look at these, we can start to see, as we know how the story goes, we can start to see what Jesus was confronting in the life of this man. First, we see that in first Timothy chapter six, how the love of money is problematic. It says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse five, keep your life free from from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then of course, there's the warning, and I think we all know this even experientially, that. Money can lead our hearts in the wrong direction. Matthew chapter six, starting at verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then here in a single verse, is why giving up his wealth was such a deal breaker for this man and explains why he walked away. Matthew chapter six and verse 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Those two things are definitely in conflict at times. You can't serve both. You can only serve one. And it's interesting here where uh, that our text describes this man as being very disheartened at Jesus' words. And it describes him as being very sorrowful as he walked away. And this word sorrowful is actually the same word used to describe Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Which, is, which means that there's, there's, there's a real heaviness that's going on there. This man had put his trust in these things and he was living for these things. And Jesus is like, no, you need to get rid of that. And this is his response. He was, he was that sorrowful. And the real issue here with this man, and as these warnings and these verses highlight, was his relationship to his wealth. And that is what Jesus is exposing here. Dallas Willard, he said, to possess riches is to have a right to say how they will or will not be used. To possess riches is to have a right to say how they will or they will not be used. And I was talking, um, I think it was with Pastor Isaac yesterday. and We were just sort of conversing back and forth and just discussing. We were talking about what does your bank account activity communicate about what you value? And how that's a very telling thing about these are the things that are important to me. Not only can it show and reveal what we might value, but it can also expose and uh, reveal a certain degree of idolatry. And I would even uh, suggest, and Pastor Ryan and I were talking about that this morning, about how um, it's good to have a personal budget so that we actually know that we are stewarding what God has given to us and that we're stewarding it well. If we don't actually know where every penny goes, and this is not a, 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 a talk on like how to budget or anything, but I'm just saying, from the perspective of biblical stewardship, how can we be found as to, as being good stewards if we don't know the money that we have and where it's going? And most most often, people who don't budget carefully, once they do start budgeting carefully, they discover that there's all kinds of waste that they were unaware of. So in that same kind of a way, as we budget personally. What we get to do with that is not only see where waste is, we get to intentionally set aside money or, or determine, predetermine that certain money is gonna be spent in certain ways. And I value this thing and I'm going to put money towards this. And so that's the opportunity that we have when we, with, with, the thing, with the money that we possess. We get the right to say how it will, how it will or will not be used. And scripture is clear about The responsibility that we have to be generous, the responsibility that we have to help the poor, help those in need, and even giving to the Lord's work. I mean, like money is often like an uncomfortable topic in some churches, whatever, but I don't really understand it. Like there's plenty of things that I would rather not talk about. Like I'm glad Ryan's teaching next week, by the way, which is awesome. Uh, I'll take this one. He can do the topic for next week, but... Scripture is clear about things. We need to be generous and we need to practice generosity on a regular basis. This is something that needs to be our first inclination because all that we have has been entrusted to us by God. It's really his. We possess these things. He owns them. He gives them to us to steward and we're to use them for his purposes to, to reach out and to love people and to demonstrate to people and reflect the love of God to them, to come alongside them in their time of need, to support the things that he is keenly interested in, which is not only the love and care of people, but in the advancement of his kingdom and the gospel around the world. And although the poor in this particular passage would have been the beneficiaries if this man had obeyed, the objective here and the call was not about being more philanthropic, although it would have had that effect, which is clearly a good thing and consistent with so many other scriptures. He was apparently a very devout man. We know that from his observance, his religious observance. He kept the law since he was a youth, which would have included tithes and offerings as the, as the law required. It would also have included giving of alms to the poor. And it's also, this is also not about... Um, trying to make up for for gaining wealth through shady, unjust, immoral, or exploitive means. The man stated that he had followed the commands that say, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. And Jesus doesn't call him out for lying. The objective and the call was that this man would follow Jesus, but his wealth was standing in the way. Jesus knew that this man, while expressing an interest in eternal life, was preoccupied with the things of this life. And so Jesus, with surgical precision, he speaks to the heart of the issue as he always does, which was for this man um, to, to recognize and to be released from the fact that he had become held captive to his personal wealth. That was his thing. He was not being a good steward of what God had entrusted to him. He was not using these things in such a way where he regarded them as something to use as a tool to be a blessing to others, and, or or uh, or anything like that. He was clearly hung up on the on his wealth as being something that was a gift for him to be able to consume on himself to give him a certain lifestyle. He had been held captive. You know, my. Um, My nine-year-old daughter, she was uh, sharing with me recently about how hard it is to love God more than uh, your family. She's like, how does that work? How do I love God more than my family? Because I love my family so much and I'm with my family all the time. How do I love God more than my family? But see, that's the thing. We need to put God first in every aspect of our lives. This is something that this rich young man was unwilling to do. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? Following Jesus requires complete surrender, complete sacrifice, and and make no mistake about it, following Jesus can be hard at times. And it can be difficult and involve making difficult decisions. But Jesus and his kingdom are to be put ahead of all other interests it's easy for us to see how bad things can get in the way of our relationship with Jesus. Like we need to, we, we can, you know, rattle off of lists a, a list of things that we need to stop doing because they're interfering with our relationship with Jesus. Well, I'm going to surrender this. I'm going to sacrifice that. I'm going to give this thing up. Well, that's easy to do, but sometimes we overlook the fact that we need to recategorize or reconsider or rethink about, um, uh, how good things, even good things in our lives can get in the way that also need to be surrendered and let go of where we, we have these things with open hands. Even like my daughter was discovering, was like, what does it look like to love my family, but to love God more? But following Jesus, what it involves is um, often difficult things. And it literally means we are not in control. We give up control. And it's, it's to let Jesus take the wheel completely, No substitutes, no exceptions, no callbacks, none of that. And next it involves actually following him. Like we use this phrase all the time. And we talk about following Jesus. and, And I think we sort of wrap it up in a lot of theological, you know, church talk or whatever. And it becomes sort of like a synonym for being a Christian or whatever. But you're not a follower of Jesus unless you're actually following Jesus. And sometimes we actually complicate it. And it's good to define what it means to follow Jesus. But a lot of times, I think that we may claim uh, a relationship with a local church or we consider ourselves to be Christians or religious or whatever. But if someone says, yeah, but do you follow Jesus? Like, no, I don't follow Jesus. Or maybe the answer is the opposite. We say, yeah, I, I am a follower of Jesus. But it involves giving up control, allowing him to do what he wants in our lives. And then it allows Uh, Then it involves us actually following him. And so to follow him implies that there's a certain closeness and intimacy that we have with him. And I think about what it's like, and this happens a lot, like whenever we have family or friends come to LA to visit. And sometimes we might be going across town to do something. And it's like, well, you know, we'll follow you. It's like, no, you, don't, no, you won't. You don't know how LA traffic works. You're not gonna follow me. You need to fire up your, G, your GPS and follow that. Because at some point as we go across town, and I'm not talking about crossing Culver City town, I'm talking about Los Angeles. As we cross town, we won't be able to follow. You won't be able to follow me closely. And then you're going to get lost. And so we need to have this closeness and this intimacy with Jesus. And that's going to involve spending time with him, which we now do through his word, uh, by by meditating on his word, even as Pastor Ryan was announcing earlier about our weekly Bible passage and all of that, meditating on his word, being uh, obedient to his word. And with, of course, the help of the Holy Spirit guiding us and leading us to the Father, enlightening truth to us. And it also, following Jesus is also going to involve becoming like him and joining in on his work with him, joining Jesus on his mission. So like I said earlier, following Jesus is not like this theological concept, but it's a relationship that we enter into and it's a lifestyle that we embrace. But for this man, his wealth had ensnared him and his loyalty was not to Jesus or to keeping his commands, but to his own comfort, to his own standard of living, which his wealth provided. He was willing to do a lot of stuff. He was willing to follow those commands from his youth. He was willing to jump through all kinds of hoops to do good and to be good, but not this. He would not give up his lifestyle. He would not give up his wealth. And in this moment, Jesus turns to his disciples because it's a teachable moment for them. And he says, he talks about how hard it is for a rich person to enter into the kingdom. And then he gives this this absurd imagery, this illustration. uh, And he says that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Our text describes the disciples' reaction as being exceedingly astonished. They were floored by this revelation because of how they viewed money and how they viewed what it looked like for the favor of God and the blessing of God to be on a person. And they say, if it's so difficult and if it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, then who can be saved? Here's a man who was apparently a very good and moral man who was also very wealthy, something that, was, that they would have associated with God's favor. And he doesn't cut it. Well, if he doesn't cut it, then who can and who does? Verse 27, and Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it's impossible, but not with God. Jesus is telling them that what they think is impossible really isn't because it has nothing to do with socioeconomic status. That's not typically something that we would think of in this culture as being indicative of one's closeness to God, but certainly it would have been at this time. Salvation is not based on these things. And they would have looked at him like he had everything going for him. He's young, he's a ruler, moral, religious, wealthy, yet he's unwilling to surrender everything to Jesus. And it was a teachable moment for his disciples And just as it was a teachable moment for them, it's a a teachable moment for us as well. Being materialistic, stingy, lacking in generosity, trusting in money is something that we can all be guilty of. And that means we can be guilty of these things, whether we have a lot or whether we don't have a lot. Money can still be an idol for us. We can still be enslaved to money. Some might be enslaved to it in the way that they have it, some may be enslaved to it in the sense they don't and they're coveting it. And they're looking to it to, um, uh, for, for their safety and their security and for their comfort. But both can be guilty of the same thing where they are trusting in their money. And I've always thought it was interesting that the money that bears the phrasing God we trust is often the idol of those that don't or won't. Earlier in our, in our study through Mark, we, we looked at how Jesus called people to follow him in mark chapter 8 Jesus is calling the crowd to him with his disciples and he said to them if any would come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul this is this last verse there Mark 8, 36 is is something that's quoted a lot. And it's something that we really need to think about. about, And it's an incredibly profound verse. What does it profit a man? If he were to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul in the process. It's a really, really, really bad trade. A really bad trade. It profits us obviously nothing. Jesus was not calling this man to a life of poverty, to give up his wealth for the sake of a life of poverty, Jesus is calling this man to a life of discipleship. He is calling us to the same. And he's asking, will you follow me if I ask you to give up everything? Will you follow me if I ask you to move to this particular city? Or maybe in our case, it's like, will you follow me if I ask you to stay in this city? Because that seems to be uh, something that happens. Uh, It's more of a challenge for many of us for a lot of good reasons too. Like my parents, they can't. I mean, they can't even relate at all. They think I'm crazy for living in Los Angeles. But they understand. They're they're believers. Then they love Jesus, and they fully embrace and accept that God has called me here, and they 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 uh, support that. But in 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 the on the human plane, they cannot comprehend why I would ever want to live in this city. And he's saying, "Will you follow me if I ask you to do something uncomfortable? Will you follow me if it means you have to let me rework?" and reshape your plans, your hopes, your dreams, your aspirations? Will you follow me if I ask you to step away from something that you are so deeply invested in and have been fighting for? Because in reality, these things are incompatible with the kingdom of God. Will you follow me if it means laying down your life? Jesus is calling us to surrender our very lives and to give up everything to follow his call, to follow him. He's asking us to surrender anything and everything that distracts us or takes us away from following him. And that is what it looks like to be a responsible steward. You know, to be a responsible steward is one of our four aims for discipleship within collective church. To be a responsible steward. What are the things that God has entrusted to us? And often when we think of stewardship or whatever, we we, we jump to money, But that's just one thing that he's given to us. He's given us our lives. He's given us our gifts. He's given us our time. He's given us our resources, whatever those resources might be. And of all the things that he's given to us, to be a responsible steward is to be willing to, to not only be willing to surrender those things, but to actually surrender them in the sense that we do not live for any of those things. They are all laid down at the foot of the cross and, and and are, 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 Uh, just, just, just given up and completely surrendered because we look to the cross and we see Jesus, the one who ultimately takes preeminence and prominence within our hearts. And he is the one we look to and he is the one that we ultimately live for. Whatever we won't surrender will only become a snare that holds us back just like it was for this man. And then in verse 29, moving on, actually 28, Uh, in our text. In response to all this, Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything. In response to all this, Peter sees this all played out in front of him. And he says, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. Weird that that gets inserted into this list and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and last first. So Jesus is being super honest with them that following him will involve sacrifice. It will bring persecution as well. Apparently and so like, we should not read this verse. as like, oh, look at the promises of God. Whatever I give up, he's going to pay back. You know, like, like whatever I give up, it, it becomes like this thing that God owes us. Well, included in this list is persecution. And so there's not like this one for one trade that's being promised here. But there is a cost that God is calling us to. And there is a reward that even with these persecutions, one commentator says that, that what this even practically looks like in real life is the extended and broader family that we discover and that they would have discovered that they had as per- persecution rose up against the church. They discovered they had families that they never knew that they had, spiritual families that they never knew that, that they had. They live in homes, they gain homes that are not really theirs. They, they, they live on lands that are not theirs, but they're they able to gain these things even through persecution because these are all people that are following Jesus. And in following Jesus and going through of all this, this is some of the ways that we still see the faithfulness of God to us. But you know, this is something I talk about a lot and, and it's something that I'm incredibly passionate about. And it's one of the things that marks who we are as collective church. But um, in one another, we are a spiritual family. We gain a spiritual family and it's an eternal family. And we get to follow Jesus together. We're a spiritual family and we get to follow Jesus together. And that's why the church is such a gift. That's why the church is such a gift. And that's why the church matters. And that's why like when things like pandemics happen and it interferes with our ability to gather and um, manifest the oneness and the assembly that we are as God's people coming together as one body, it hurts and we should mourn the loss of that. But the, 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 the local church, we always say that the church is not a place where, but a people who, right? We are people and, the, and, and we are a gift. The collective community, uh, pun or no pun, is, is, uh, is a gift to us. And whatever we surrender and whatever we sacrifice for Jesus will always be worth it. Not because one day we're going to look back and we'll think, oh, that was easy. But... I'm sure one day we will look back and we go, that was necessary. And part of following Jesus, the one we live for. And so, as we're in this series called Discovering Jesus, what I think there is for us to discover about Jesus is how serious the call to follow him really is. Sometimes I think that we just think that Christianity is just one of many religions we opt into yeah, I'll go along with that. That sounds good to me. And we almost adopt sort of a consumeristic um, approach to it where we treat it like a, a commodity that we accept and we take to use for our good. It makes me feel good. The pastor said, I'm following Jesus. I get to go to heaven now. I'm good. But what we need to do is consider the seriousness of this call, the seriousness of the call to follow Jesus. Jesus there is a cost that comes with it. I'm not going to pretend that there's not. There is a cost to following Jesus. And when I look at the ministry of Jesus, and as we look at the ministry, and just read through the gospels, it's obvious. The crowd that was often around Jesus, but they were not all followers of Jesus. We have to sort of sort through and figure out for ourselves, where do we belong in that picture? Are we in the crowd where we're sort of in proximity and kind of hovering around? Are we truly deeply madly? That's a song from the 90s, but right? 90s? Sorry. Are we? Yes, that's right. Um, are we truly following Jesus as I described earlier? It'll be worth it. So, in this new year, where many are making New Year's resolutions and all of that, I never do that, but if you're into that kind of thing, and you're making New Year's resolutions. And even if you're the kind that doesn't make New Year's resolutions, it's still a great opportunity here. And my encouragement in 2021 is to resolve to follow Jesus with your whole heart. And that we would live every moment of every day and make it a part of our identity and acknowledge it as part of our identity. That I'm a follower of Jesus. Jesus. And today I'm going to actively live that out and I'm going to follow him. When I talk with my neighbor, I'm going to talk with my neighbor and live and interact with my neighbor in in ways that reflect the fact that I'm following Jesus. In the way that I um, conduct myself in the home, it will reflect the fact that I am a follower of Jesus. In the way that I relate to my friends, my coworkers, whatever it might be, the person I talk to at the store, whatever, that we would live out what it means to be a follower of Jesus and guess what we are going to fall short we are not going to get it right all of the time and that's the challenge what does it look like for in this next year and really for the rest of our lives but specifically as we look to this year ahead what does it look for what does it look like for us to level up as followers of Jesus and i pray that we can do that together as a church community and we're here for one another we participate in one another's discipleship. We're here to help one another and support one another. And that's why why we are deeply engaged in God's word through our Bible reading plan and through our teaching on Sunday. And we gather in our discipleship groups to help one another along in this pursuit and in following this call to follow Jesus. We need one another. This is a team sport. And so in this next year, in 2021, let's do that. Let's pray.